Hi, I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats. Before we start, I want to apologize for the sound quality of this episode. For some context, my guest, Olia Scootercaster, is halfway around the world in Kiev. Twelve hours after our interview, Russia launched its invasion. Events have overtaken us. Even so, we've decided to air this conversation, partly to give you a sense of how it felt in Kiev to see an entire country held hostage by the threat of violence, but also to mark the moment when Ukrainians held out hope that reason might prevail. There should be no doubt in anyone's mind who the aggressor is. It is Vladimir Putin. Olia has continued to document the invasion as it unfolds. We wish her the best of luck. And we will do our best to continue bringing you insightful perspectives as the conflict evolves. Here's how it felt to one Ukrainian journalist in Kiev on the eve of war. Burn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to votevets.org. I mean, the worst case scenario is World War III, but I remain hopeful that politicians will finish up their game and make a diplomatic decision instead of destroying lives. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Olya Skutercaster, a Ukrainian video journalist who has lived and reported around the globe, but recently returned to her hometown of Kiev to document the ongoing conflict with Russia. I asked Olya to come on the show to share what she's seen so far to discuss Ukrainian sentiments about the situation and to hopefully provide some insight into what's next for Ukraine, Russia, and the U.S. Olya, thanks for joining me. Hey, thank you. I'd like to start with some of the background. Ukraine shares deep historical ties with Russia. It was part of the Soviet Union until 1991 when it gained its independence. Uh, Some economic hardships followed along with some political turmoil. But today, Ukraine is a democracy unlike its Russian neighbor. How do you, how do Ukrainians think about their country and its relationships with both the West and with Russia? I mean, in general, it really depends who you ask. From back when, when I was growing up, uh, the younger generation seemed to aim more towards the European lifestyle and the older generation, of course, romanticized how USSR used to be. Nowadays, it's, I mean, people just want peace. They just want to be able to live their lives. Is that difference in attitude also dependent on geography? We hear all the time about the eastern regions of Ukraine being more sympathetic to Russia. I imagine that's part of the internal tension as well, right? Correct. Um, I went to, um, I stayed on bus for about two weeks. I did go to a village and I spoke to people around there. And most of them would basically just say that they're not for either side. They've been living in the country that's under war for is it eight years now and from what they told me the prices have grown they're not getting much help outside of volunteers and they basically just want to get back to normal um the people that i interviewed the general message was they don't 
want either side. They just want peace and they want the prices to become normal again. They don't want to hear shelling. They don't want to see grenades. They just want normal life. And what are you hearing uh, as you travel around uh, Ukraine or even there in, in Kiev about the, I guess, the balance of responsibility here? Is there a prevailing sentiment? Do most Ukrainians feel one way or the other about who's to blame? Oh, I mean, pretty much everybody I ask just wants the Russia to stop trying to get into the country. Yes. Ukrainians, majority of the people, not majority, I mean, everybody I personally spoke to, all blaming the Russian side for invading. I'm saying majority because, of course, I didn't question the entire Ukraine, so I can only say majority, but every single person I've spoken to, you know, just wants the Russia to stop attacking or trying to mess with the country. You know, they're all saying that back in the day, they never thought that somebody who the country considered their friends would ever attack them. And it's just like a feeling of disbelief. So let's bring it to the present that, I mean, you're describing it as as an attack, and that is the the movement of Russian troops into those eastern breakaway provinces. Is that right? Are we talking about the same thing? Yeah, I mean, they're currently occupying Ukrainian territories. And, you know, as of, was it two days ago or a day ago, they moved in what they called peacekeeping troops into the Ukraine, oh, into Ukraine. And what is your reaction and the reaction of the people you talk to to that, to that framing, to calling them peacekeeping troops? I mean, everybody knows it's not peacekeeping troops. There was a situation in Kazakhstan with a protest and just around the time when peacekeeping troops came in, there was a lot of people killed. So that word isn't very comforting. And you're talking about the Russians moving in troops to Kazakhstan to prop up the autocrat there. And from my understanding, it wasn't necessarily Russians. It was um, multiple countries did it together. I remember somebody reported it as Russians and um, it was actually corrected later. But just in general, the peacekeeping troops does not sound very peacekeeping when you come into somebody else's country by force. What are the fears of Ukrainians now? You have a massive Russian presence inside eastern Ukraine. You have an even larger buildup of Russian forces just across the border. I would imagine there is a palpable fear that what you are experiencing is just the beginning of something bigger. I mean, 100%. Uh, while until very recently, it was very calm and it didn't look like it was going to escalate, the last few days have changed everything drastically. So I, I think people kind of expect the word to happen now. That's talk. the general consensus that I've gotten. It's going to happen, we just don't know when. Can you talk about specifically what you're seeing? I saw some of your reporting outside the Russian embassy, for example. Right. So yesterday they announced the Russian embassy would be evacuating around Ukraine. When I arrived there, there was a riot police in the riot gear leaving. I'm not sure why they were there. And I went around the back to where the diplomatic cars would usually leave. And I saw a diplomatic car arrive and carry out a bunch of boxes that they brought into the embassy grounds. And then about half an hour later, you know, you could see little flames and a lot of smoke coming out. I mean, I think the implication is clear, right? But just to spell it out, they're they're burning documents because they are going to abandon 
an embassy in a country they're about to invade. Yeah, to evacuate the embassy, yes. I'm assuming they have to get rid of the classified information. Got it. Um, What is Ukraine doing officially to prepare? Do you have insight into into military preparations, into what um, the Ukrainian armed forces are, are doing to ready themselves? Yes. So far, there is always ongoing trainings. They called in reserves today, now officially. More people are trying to join different volunteer groups and official training groups. Uh, volunteer groups are actually seem to be part of the JFO. So I'm assuming those people, if they want to, they'll be able to join the army as well. So this is something that this is the message that they shared with the journalists that just now in Russia 24 named a list of 85 people of the top leadership of Ukraine, which the investigative committee of Russia considers a necessary to bring to criminal responsibility for the genocide of civilian population of Donbass. The list includes the commanders of all brigades of the armed forces of Ukraine, 2000, 2000, 2014, 2015, and those who command now defense ministers, etc., GFO and ATO. So it seems like things are moving. The fact that they announced the list publicly like that. I was going to ask, so that isn't a leaked document. That is an intimidation tactic. They're putting that out publicly. Yes, it appears to be, yep. Okay. How are the Ukraine? So you've you've described how the Ukrainian government is preparing and and the mobilization of troops and the recall of of guard members. How about the Ukrainian people? What are you seeing on the streets of Kiev and outside Kiev among uh, your fellow Ukrainians? I would say there actually is way less people in Kiev now. Definitely over the last week, I see less and less people. So I'm assuming the ones that could leave left. And the ones that are staying from the ones I spoke to, they're all, you know, they have their safety plan. They have their bags and documents ready to go. They have their extra water, extra food. Now they're thinking of um, safety precautions and escape plans. Have you talked to anybody with a cultural memory of invasion or or occupation? I would imagine for you and your your peer group, this is otherworldly, but there are surely people who uh, who remember what European war looks like and just how devastating it is. Ukraine, of course, being the the second largest country in Europe after Russia itself. This is not a minor affair. Right. And I think most people understand that. I am a little surprised by those who don't seem to care or realize the gravity of the situation. What are the people you're talking about saying about the U.S. and other Ukrainian allies and what is needed from them? In general, it seems people are grateful for all the help, but also some feel like there is a lot of talk and not enough action. I'm sure it also comes back from 2014, 2015, when not much was done after the country was invaded. And now is the deciding moment to see whether those words were empty. But it seems like some sanctions are happening. But, you know, people are optimistic, but doubtful. I saw on a Ukrainian TV station, they did a little poll on whether the current sanctions are enough to change anything, and 85% said no. Is there a hope in that reaction that 
the West will go beyond sanctions? Are people expecting more than than an economic response? Uh, what are they talking about? What are you talking about when you say living up to our promises? I think people want more help. They understand that because Ukraine is not part of NATO, there is not much that can be done. But considering that this war could become everybody's problem, not just Ukraine problems, I think they're expecting more and hoping more. When you say this war could become everyone's problem, can you explain that uh, a bit? How would a Russian invasion of Ukraine impact the rest of us? From what I'm seeing right now, all countries are kind of entangled in the decisions. So if something were to happen, it's not going to be just Ukrainians because there's already sanctions happening and everything. I feel like it will all get mixed, like everybody will be a part of it. And I, I still feel like Ukraine is simply being used as a chess piece, you know, but unfortunately it's this country and yeah. Are you hearing about aid and support to Ukraine and in particular the Ukrainian military that is material, like the the shipment of of equipment and things that can help in the defense? Yeah, there's a regular shipment of things. Um weaponry and helmets from Germany. I think they gave a bunch of helmets. I mean, I'm seeing posts of some sort of help landing in Burisco Airport quite often. And what are your plans should the Russian forces now in eastern Ukraine decide to continue moving west? How close is Kiev? Kiev is close to Belarus. So the danger here is mostly from Belarus. If they continue moving through Donbass, it will take a while to get to Kiev. But the worry is if they were to push against Donbass and the army responds, what stops them from moving troops from Belarus towards Kiev? And after the last uh, speech I listened to by Putin, it's very concerning. Yes. Can you tell us about that speech? Because there were some very alarming pronouncements in it, among them Putin saying that Ukraine, and this is a quote, Ukraine never had a tradition of genuine statehood. I mean, that seems like the excuse of of every autocrat invading a neighbor. It honestly just felt like it's something personal. Oh, what do you mean by that? I mean, just all politics aside, there was so much hate for this country, and I can't even gather why. Yeah. Olya, I'm wondering if anyone has suggested or offered a theory as to why it seems so personal for Putin. I I have picked up on the same thing. And I guess it's something about the dissolution of the Soviet Union. uh, And he wants to undo that with Ukraine as the centerpiece of a renewed empire building. Does that make sense? Uh, What I'm hearing from... Basically, every single person I've talked to about this is they think that he just has mental illness, that it's his age and COVID isolation caused this. They bring to attention, for example, the long tables, the extremely long tables. And then some people mentioned the paranoia in the speeches, stuff like that. So the general message that I've been hearing is that it's just mental illness or from him being older. And then there's nothing that can change it at this point. 
And when you say extremely long tables, for those who haven't seen them, you're talking about Putin sitting literally 20 feet away from an advisor in a meeting, like Wayne Manor style. He's at the very end of the table in the dominant position, and everyone else is at the other end. Have you had the opportunity to talk to uh, soldiers in the Ukrainian army or their family members about their state of mind and, and what they expect? I mean, they just keep fighting. There's not much they can do. Some say it's the same thing. You know, they're still attacking us. It's just escalated a lot. And this isn't a Cold War style confrontation. It has become bloody. The invasion involved artillery barrages. Funerals are already being held. Uh, this is very real and already deadly for Ukrainians, right? Yes. Um, I mean, at least there's daily multiple injuries. There was death again today. There was more death the previous days. I mean, while before when I was in Donbass, which was um, two weeks ago, from time to time you would have an injury, a sniper would hit someone. Now it's escalated to a daily numbers. Before, when joint forces operation would send press a breakdown of what has happened, it would be this many violations occurred, this many violations occurred, nobody injured, nobody injured. And now when we receive this briefing, it usually has a count of how many people have been hurt, um, how many people have been killed. Yesterday, a civilian was shot and killed. Others were also hurt. So it, it's it's definitely a large escalation. In your mind, what is the worst case scenario? How bad might this get? I mean, the worst case scenario is World War Three, but I remain hopeful that politicians will finish up their game and make a diplomatic decision instead of destroying lives. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Um, what do you hope for, and what message do you want to convey to to the U.S.? My message to people is just to remember that there is families here, you know, just like you, just like everybody else, Wow, it's so easy to get into politics and be like, screw that, screw this. Oh, no, I support this. Oh, no, he sounds cool. Like, there is actually people here whose life are going to be destroyed. It's not just, it's not just politics for them. And I think a lot of people forget that even just the fear-mongering that was happening, I mean, it was constant. Like, I would wake up in the morning, everything is fine. Two hours later, the invasion is imminent. I'm packing a bag. Two hours later, it's fine again. Oh, okay. I can continue filming. Then another two hours later, it's going to be another invasion. And it's constantly ongoing, nonstop. And it's just, it's not helping the Ukrainian people here. Things should be done that are helpful rather than hurtful. Well, Leah, thanks for joining me. I hope you stay safe. Thanks again to Olia for joining me. Visit her website, scootercaster.com, to see her on-the-ground footage of Kiev as this invasion unfolds, and follow her on Twitter at at ScooterCasterNY. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Thanks to our partner, VoteVets. 
Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. Vote Vets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rulhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.